Good morning, Calvary. Enoch is an unusual story, and as we're continuing on with our Ebenezer series, it's going to be a, a little different feel today. I just want to kind of give you that precursor as we're going through that. But I want to define Ebenezer, if you weren't here last week, because I think this is really important for us to understand. And our hope is that by the time we're through with this series, the first thing you think of Ebenezer isn't Ebenezer Scrooge, okay? So here's what we mean by Ebenezer. An Ebenezer is a marker of past hope, fulfilled by God's faithfulness, giving us an assurance of future hope. It's a marker of past hope, fulfilled by God's faithfulness, giving us an assurance of future hope. And the way we're doing this is we're walking through the story of Hebrews chapters 11, Hebrews chapter 11, which tells us of many of the Old Testament stories and how their stories can be a uh, Ebenezer moment in our life, a marker of past faithfulness that can help us live out our life. So we're now going to read Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, which tells us the story that basically what Morgan just read in Genesis 5, 21 through 24. Hebrews 11, 5 says this, By faith Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I mean, this is kind of a cool story, right? There was a man who lived a long time, and then one day he just ceased to exist. They couldn't find him. God, God took him home. He was so righteous, God kind of went, you know what? You don't need to live anymore. Come on home. I mean, that is a cool life, right? And so when we look at the story of Enoch, here's the, the struggle we have. The struggle that we have with the story of Enoch is it is actually difficult to preach. The reason it's difficult to preach is because we like a good comeback story. We like the idea of the Olympic athlete who twisted her ankle and had to go through 14,321 surgeries and, and only ate Wheaties every day and then overcame all of the obstacles to one day stand on the Olympic podium and win the gold medal, right? We love those stories. We love the comeback stories. We love the comeback stories in church life as well. The guy who who's, has the, the drug addiction or, or used to be in prison and now they're running the Fortune 500 company and, and they're, they're leading and showing people Christ left and right. And we sit there and think, wow, what a powerful example of God's grace. And hear me, that is a powerful example of God's grace when that happens. It shows the magnitude of what God can do and has done. And I think there's good news from that. Because when you look throughout the Bible, most of the people were those comeback stories. Most of the stories that we're going to hear and talk about are those people who had the messed up life. And we can probably relate to those a little better because if we were really transparent with each other right now, most of us are messed up, right? We put the fun in dysfunction. And the idea of God loving us is a big draw because we need God because we know that without Him we, we can't stand on our own. So when we contrast that with the life of Enoch, it might be what can we possibly glean from them? How can we create an Ebenezer moment in our life based on that? Well, I would argue that way that we can do that is by coming to the place where 
no matter where we've been in our past, no matter what we've done, we use this moment to be described as from this moment forward, I'm going to live a righteous life. Now, a righteous life isn't the same thing as a legalistic life. A legalistic life is a life that attempts to be holy, but is actually not. And the reason you know that it's not is because there isn't really love, peace, joy, patience, you know, all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. There's just rigidity, angst, and anger when we don't live up to God's standards. But a righteous life means that you are at peace with God and you're trying to attempt to walk in the direction that He leads and guides. In other words, uh, the good way to describe it is the words off an artist I like by the name of Chris Renzema who says this in his song, uh, Abba, I mean Adonai. Here's the words. He's writing to God, I promise you I will not waste your time thinking of ways to clear my name. Oh, Adonai, have mercy on me. Let that sink in. What does it look like to live a righteous life? It's promising to God that I will not have to in the future spend time trying to clear my name or beg for mercy or beg for forgiveness because I am going to live a right life by doing what God asks, which is ultimately better for Him and for us. There are benefits that we get when we do that. And I, I want to real quickly talk about some benefits that you get by living a life that is right with God. One is the idea that the benefits of a righteous life leads to less earthly consequences. You do realize that once you commit a sin, once you go down the path of a sin, once you succumb to a sin, you will then be more susceptible to that sin for the rest of your life. Ask an alcoholic. Are you an alcoholic? Yes, but I thought you were recovered. There is no such thing as a recovered. There is a recovering alcoholic. That may be foreign for some of us who haven't known that, but it's the idea of I know that I could become that again because I've gone down that path before. Once you give into an addiction, once you give into a sin, you're much more susceptible to that sin because you've proven you can do it, right? So by saying I'm going to live a righteous life, you're avoiding future temptations and the magnitude of the possibility of going down a path that is dangerous. The other side of that is when you live a righteous life, the other part of the earthly consequence is that earthly consequences can linger. But God forgave me! Right. If you are drunk tonight and you go out and you kill someone on accident because you didn't know what you were doing, you're drunk. You can ask for forgiveness and be real, real repentance, and God will forgive you. You're still going to jail. If you kill someone by texting while you're driving, you can be real repentant. You're still going to go to jail. And the way this works is when we do things in our life, when we make choices, God can forgive us, but there are earthly consequences that will stay around and that will continue to dwell with us for the rest of our life on earth. This isn't necessarily a horrible thing. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Our God is so good and so kind and so gracious that there will be people who are allowed to go into the presence of God in eternity in heaven because God has forgiven them, even though you and I right now wouldn't would struggle with the fact that God will forgive them. 
people who have done horrible sins that I won't even mention because they may be triggers for some of us in this room. God can forgive them. And we celebrate, we need to celebrate a God that is righteous and holy, right? But it doesn't mean their earthly consequences go away. Let me play this out in a very practical way. Once again, I know that there are some of us who have passed. I'm aware of it. I know that there's some of us in this room who are struggling, so I'm not trying to call out anybody. I'm trying to preclude us from going down the path in the future, right? So if you have a past where there is any involvement of abuse of a child, guess what? God can still forgive you and love you, and we will do our best to love you and find appropriate ways for you to be involved in this church. But over my dead body, will you work in our kids' ministry? ever there are earthly consequences that don't go away do you get that because once again once you're susceptible to sin it's, it means there's a potential of it again down the road so the best way to avoid the earthly consequences is to not go to that path <laughs> the, the best way to overcome those is to, to allow God to say God I'm not going to go down that path I'm going to live the righteous life now, if you're struggling with some guilt right now, bear with me, because we're going we're gonna to come back around. Just, just hang in there, okay, as we're going with this. this so that's the, uh, the first real benefit of a righteous life. It leads to less earthly consequences. But the second one is a righteous life leads to generational impact. When we talked about Ebenezer moments, we talked about moments in our life that, that say, okay, I'm going to define my life. What we need to understand is Ebenezer moments have a generational impact always. It doesn't mean that your kids are going to make the right choice. It doesn't mean that you made the right choice from what your parents did. But there's an influence there. There is an impact. We're going to get a little more complicated before we get better. Bear with me. When all of this is said and done, let me explain how this works out. If you grew up in a divorced family, you are three times more likely to get divorced yourself. If you are divorced, God can heal. You can use a righteous moment like this to allow it to change in the direction of your future, okay? But your kids are three times more likely to get divorced unless you allow God to be the righteous center of your life. Uh, let's talk about this. Do you know that there's one out of ten families in the United States currently is estimated, according to a, a Connecticut research firm, one out of ten families in the United States currently have an alcoholic living under the roof. One out of ten. But their kids who grew up in that alcoholic family, that number jumps to a 33% chance that you will be in an alcoholic as an adult. So if you grew up with an alcoholic in the family, there's two-thirds, no way I want that, but the increased chance goes from 10% to 33% chance. We get that, right? But what about church attendance? <laughs> that seems to pale in comparison to those other examples, right? But the idea of church attendance is not really about church attendance. It's about how serious you take your faith. Do you really believe that God is who he says he is? Do you really believe that you're going to put in the effort, what it looks like for your family to have a generational impact that will allow your kids to grow up and follow God in their faith? Y'all do realize we're having actually a pandemic in the United States right now in the world of kids walking away from their faith as adults. 
And it doesn't seem to matter about the circumstance except for the following question. How you answer the following question is the most likely determiner about whether or not your children, when they grow up, will still follow God. Here it is. Do you daily talk about the scriptures, prayer, or spiritual matters with 12 to 17-year-olds in your house? That's it. Do you daily talk about scriptures, prayer, other than God is great, God is good, we don't remember this prayer anymore? In your family, do you want your kids to grow up faith? And the, the reason is because they're seeing their parents take their faith serious when you talk about it all the time. Okay, some of you are like, statistic overload? Let me give you one more. Christianity Today surveyed a group of empty nesters. We understand what empty nester is, right? Kids don't live no home no more. Amen. When that day comes, you can eat out more, I promise. But the, the other part of that is, when that day comes, you will probably have some regrets. And they were asking those senior adults, what, uh, not senior adults. <laughs> oh, I wish I could edit that out. Um, they were asking those empty nesters, what are your biggest regrets? 92% of all empty nesters who grew up, who have a church background, said that their biggest regret was that they didn't spend more time talking about God with their kids. Not the vacations we get to go on. Not on how important sports are in our life. Not creating mama moments. The biggest regret they had was 92% of their, them said their biggest regret was that were, they did not talk about faith enough as a family. Now, some of you might be sitting there going, Daniel, that's great. I don't have kids. They'll plan on having kids. I'm single for life. Or I, I'm an uh, older person who no longer is raising kids. What does this have to do with anything? There's a great book by Sam Oliberry that talks about the seven myths of singleness, Okay. And in this book, he says something I think it's very important for every one of us to understand, whether you're single or married. The church is supposed to be a family. And yes, we believe around here that parents should be the primary disciple makers of their home. Chew it, swallow it, repeat it. Parents should be the primary disciple makers of their family. But it sure helps to have a bunch of aunts and uncles and cool brothers and cool sisters who are living their faith that when we gather together in a church are helping their children grow up in faith in the Lord. That's why we have things like student community. That's why we have all of these other ideas because we want you to know that we in the church care about helping your kids see other godly parents growing up in their faith. Sidebar, the church should never be a place where anyone feels alone. So if you're a single mom worrying about how to find community, we want to help. We may not always do it right, but we want to help. If you're the person struggling for community going, how do I fit in? We want to help. Let us know because we want to be that. Not that we can be perfect in that, but we want to be a place for everybody to connect because the church should be a family and the family should help raise the kids. But no amens on that at all. All right. Harking it back to my Texas days, I apologize. The idea here is the generational impact goes way beyond what we can remember and see. 
let's look at this a little deeper. In the Enoch story found in Genesis chapter 5, right, we, we see that Enoch no longer walked with God, but seemingly innocently enough, in the previous chapter, we hear a story of a man by the name of Lamech. Now, in the Bible, there's actually a couple different people named Enoch and a couple different people named Lamech. So if you're doing research, don't get it confused, okay? But the Lamech we're talking about is from the lineage of Cain. Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. And then here's the story of Lamech. Lamech said to his wives, this is actually a song. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. And now imagine him singing this song. This is the song that their family would sing. For I killed a man for wounded me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. If Cain was known for killing people, then if, and if people know me, I'm, this is the family line, we are killers. <laughs> Your surname probably carries a line of meaning. Do you realize that? If not, then your, maybe your mama's side carries a line of meaning, or maybe there is a legacy to behold. Now, here's what's interesting. The story of Lamech there, he is the seventh generation removed, or the eighth generation removed. I don't remember exactly. Seventh or eighth, okay? The idea of he's the seventh generation, so some people count that as eight, some seven. I'm confusing you all. Here's the point. The same distance there is what Enoch was to his ancestor, Seth, who was also a child of Adam and Eve. So you have in Genesis chapter 4, a history of killers. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 5, a history of people living out their faith. The legacy carries forward. We discussed this in the past. Most of us could not name the great-grandparents. By the way, I said there are four great-grandparents. You have eight, like two of you picked up on that. Kudos to the two of you. The rest of you, shame on you, because you were like me. Didn't understand math. The idea as we're going through with all this is, I doubt most of us could name our great-grandparents. What about seven generations ago? So I did a little research, okay? I want you to try to guess. Seven generations ago, before Daniel Berry, what year was that person born? Well, I have the answers. I know you're excited about this. <laughs> Joel Berry was born in North Carolina in 1776. Good year. Something happened that year. <laughs> Good year tires was invented. No, I'm just kidding. 1776. Seven, seven generations ago. Don't tell me there's not a generational impact. Generational impacts affect we are still living out the ramifications of what happened seven generations ago, for good and for bad. We're still living out the generational differences. We're still living out the generational struggle. We're still trying to overcome the generational sin. It happens. What if we change the dynamic and live a life that was righteous? Now, here's the place that I would like to, to say. The Berry Line has a history of going very up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, it wasn't always a stable line. My mom's side actually has a very good, solid, stable generation. And in fact, in 1806, seven generations ago, there was a man born by the name, I should know this, but I don't, uh, John, who was born in Clark County, Georgia. And he was born in 1809. 
And in that lineage, there wasn't the up, down, up, down. In fact, almost every single person born on my mom's side of the family was either a cop or a pastor. Sorry. Half of them saw the good in people, half of them saw the bad. But they both tried to make a difference in the world. Right? By the way, my twin brother is a cop. So I'll, I'll be sitting with him, I'm like, ooh, dude, I think that guy's selling drugs. And I'll be like, let's go talk to him. He goes, let's go arrest him. I go, no, let's talk to him first. Let's go arrest him. This is the family dynamic. And so the idea of this is, is understanding that there is a line that makes a difference. And so my mom's family for years gathered every Thanksgiving. And as we cut the turkey, we, when I was a little boy, there was like 90 people who would gather around. And after we cut the turkey, we would sing hymns and we would pray together and we would have a good old-fashioned church service on Thanksgiving. Why? That's what the family does. And no, not everybody in that family is perfect because God gives us free will. But I'm wondering today if we understand the generational impact it has when we say, I will live a righteous life. You could be the generation that ends divorce. I'm already divorced. By living a righteous life, maybe it ends for your kids. You could be the generation that ends whatever. You could be the generation... You could, but not on your own accord, but by trusting in God and, and not trying to, to, you know what Enoch didn't do? I've got to pull up my bootstraps and go to work and work harder than everybody else to make a generational impact. What was Enoch's career? We have no idea. What did he do for vacation? Not a clue. Probably didn't take vacations. Where is he going to go? On a cruise, right? What is Enoch known for? He loved the Lord. And when you die, your life is going to be summed up in one or two sentences. And I pray it's not, he was the CEO of, she made really good soup. Inside joke in my family, sorry. My prayer is that when you die, they look and say, he or she was a woman who loved the Lord. So how do we get there? We create an Ebenezer moment. Okay, how do we do that? Hebrews 6, 11, 6. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, believing what we can't see completely but has certainty about without that it is impossible to, to believe that god is going to do something generationally to believe that god is going to do something by your best effort and no none of us are going to be perfect we're all going to need grace amen but in that through that god is still going to help us and so the way that we're going to try to do that is we're going to try to live out that faith and and i would encourage you try to keep trying to come up with those 12 word sentences and the way that we're even talking about that this week is our daily training is this define the legacy you desire to leave the next generation in one to two sentences a great way to do that is by coming up with your 12 word 12 to 15 word purpose statement here's another one i've given you mine in the past here's another one here's another example i tried to make it simpler this time enoch existed you can insert your name there 
Enoch existed to glorify God by devoting himself to a righteous life and in turn passing that legacy on to his family. Wow. That's such a novel concept. But if that's in everything you do, it changes the world. So-and-so existed to live passionately on mission at Caterpillar. So-and-so existed to radically help people encounter God. So-and-so existed to help my kids grow up and walk with the Lord. What is it for you? Live it. Now, here's how we get there. The complete understanding, the next generation is affected by the example we set. The course we, can, the course we take can lead them to further dysfunction or a purposeful focus on God's kingdom. Choose today with an Ebenezer moment. Ebenezer moments always require a shift. So let's recover, cover again the three shifts we talked about from the first week. The idea of there should be either a tactical shift, a strategic shift, or a paradigm shift in our faith today. So what's a paradigm shift? Once again, this is a stool. Congratulations if you already knew that. You're sitting in chairs. If you were here a few weeks ago, you remember me saying, you probably sat in your chair without thinking about it this morning. Even though I covered that a few weeks ago, most of you probably still sat in your chair and didn't sit there and go. I don't know who's been tinkering with this. No, you just sat out, right? Why? Because it is proven to you that most chairs like this can hold your weight. <laughs> but you still had faith when you sat in the chair. The reason that we struggle is some of us need a paradigm shift. Because we don't believe that we can trust sitting in God. We don't believe that sitting in His presence is actually enough. That's why we have to work harder and get the next promotion. That's why we have to, to climb the next mountain. That's why we have to find the next relationship. That's why we have to bounce from friendship to friendship, from church to church. Because we're trying to earn something that was never meant to earn. All you got to do is sit in the presence of God. You want to live a righteous life? Sit in the presence of God. You want to have peace, patience, joy, kindness, the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Sit in the righteous place in the seat of God. It's right there. You just got to sit in it. Some of us need to have a paradigm shift that says, I'm not going to put my hope in that next career advancement or in getting married or in how my kids turn out. All of those things can be important, but my hope and my foundation comes in trusting God. Now, that's the paradigm shift. What does it look like for a strategic shift? A strategic shift is the idea that you know, you believe in your heart of hearts that stool is going to hold you, but you don't actually sit. How is that a strategic shift? I'm standing. Now I'm sitting. Wait for it. I'm doing Elmo here. I'm standing. Now I'm sitting. Sesame Street say good. Okay, this idea of what it looks like, we know. And we have the faith to believe that God is who he says he is. But we busy our life instead of sitting in his presence. How do I know this? Your day-to-day -day life does not talk about God. Your day-to-day -day life does not include opening his word. Your day-to-day -day life does not include pursuing the nature of God. You make excuses and fit him in when he's convenient, but you aren't pausing to sit and soak in what you know is necessary dwelling in the presence of God.
Some of you need to choose today to make a strategic shift that says, you know what? I need to do whatever it takes to learn how to sit in the presence of God. We want to help you with that. If you, if you need struggle with either of those two things, know that we have people who would love to talk to you more about that. We'll be up front at the end of the service. We want to help you with that, okay? The third one is perhaps the easiest, but also one of the most difficult, and that's the tactical shift. And that's when your team is trailing at halftime, right? The playbook's no longer working. And here's an, a simple example of how that works. You have your quiet time every day, but it doesn't seem meaningful. You know why? You are not a morning person. You have never been a morning person. And that youth minister, when you were 14 years old, said, if you love Jesus, you're going to start your day with the Bible. Now, hear me. You should start your day with God. Don't check into the world without checking with God. But that could be, God, I'm not a morning person. Help me not to be rude to my roommate right now. Amen. But when you are awake and you are aware and you are cognizant of what's going on, if you learn best at night, when should you study your Bible? If you are really struggling with this or that, then you need to find the, the tactical shift that allows you to... You need, some of you have, have been stuck doing the same biblical pattern over and over again. You think it's necessary for you to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation every year, but you're not growing because it doesn't mean anything to you. Maybe spend a week in one chapter and say, God, show me something new every day. Maybe a subtle tactical shift is, is inviting someone and saying, I need accountability for church attendance. I need accountability for being in the small group. I need accountability for... Maybe a subtle tactical chance, uh, shift is sitting there going, our family will not miss church unless one of us is vomiting or we're on vacation. Period. But what about Nope. Tactical shift. We're doing it. Why? What we're doing isn't working. We're trailing. Now, I would like to, to close by simply saying this. The daily training is to define your legacy. But if you define your legacy, but you don't actually shift your life change into that, that legacy, the legacy will not change. And generation after generation, you're going to continue to repeat the patterns that has befuddled your family. I know some of us have a past. God forgives. But we can take this moment as an Ebenezer moment. No matter what you've done in your past. And say from this moment forward, I will live a righteous life. Church, does that sound good? You think we can do it? Maybe. Realistically, some of you might. And some of you have already tuned out because you don't think you can. Rethink it. You can. You can. You can. Praise God. You can. So God, we give you this moment. And we ask that you take the best of us that we have right now. That you would help us to find your presence, your peace, your hope. God, in this room right now, I pray for a history of generational dysfunction to end. God, we don't say that lightly. That history does not have to be repeated. That you can break the shackles of generational dysfunction. And God, that you would give us hope 
as we pursue you, that when we fall down, we get back up, that when we make the tactical or strategic or paradigm shifts, that, that we would truly tr learn to, to sit in your presence and to dwell with you because you are our hope, you are our strength, you are our joy, you are all that we need. So God, help us to be still right now as we trust in you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.